0: And welcome to The Writer's Mindset with me, Christina Adams. And me, Ellie Betts. Each week, we're here to bring you the strategies and advice you need to achieve your writing and publishing goals.
1: And this week, we're talking to Kristen and Spencer about copy editing. Mm. Kristen and Spencer spends part of each day imagining up new worlds and beings when she isn't busy with her three children, two dogs and husband. When she's not writing, editing or mothering, you can find her sewing cosplay costumes, watching geek-esque movies and reading voraciously. Her purpose in life is to help people tell awesome stories and her favourite shape is a hexagon.
0: And Ellie helped me record this interview because when we did it, I didn't have a voice and I'd already rescheduled more than once. It was some much-needed peace
1: and quiet in Christina's household.
0: Yeah, my boyfriend wasn't complaining. (laughs) Probably enjoyed it, to be fair. No comment. Kristen was also kind enough to put together some free goodies to help you become a better writer and editor. So stay tuned to the end of the episode to find out more about how to get your hands on those.
1: So generous. I'm excited to share them with our lovely writers. Shout out to all our writers who help support us on Patreon. As a patron, you'll get early access to episodes, bonus content, and our undying gratitude for helping support us and all the work that goes into creating
0: these episodes for you. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash So, today, our game quiz question thing, I don't know what we're calling this bit, is the number one piece of literary advice that inspired you. And if you are listening, do let us know on YouTube or post in our Facebook group or even you can email us at podcast at So Ellie. What is your number one piece of literary advice? It's hard to
1: choose because there have been some good ones over the years. But the first one that came into my head when we were thinking about this was someone once told me that every story has already been told, which is not a bad thing at all. It doesn't mean your story isn't worth telling. What it means is the foundations of every story have already been told. So the important thing is to tell the story your way put your unique way of telling it onto the, onto the novel, the short story, whatever it is. And that's what people want. People aren't looking for something groundbreaking necessarily. They're looking for your story, your way. And that was quite liberating for me, not trying to worry about writing the most amazing book ever, but worrying about making sure it was authentically me. And I wanted to share that with our writers because I think that's important.
0: Oh, definitely. It's something that um, Lisa Vino and Savannah Cade both mentioned as well in terms of being authentically you and how stories have been told because, you know, they both write different forms of romance and romance is so hard to write because everyone already knows the ending. So it really is about that journey in order to get your characters there. And again, because everyone knows the ending, it just makes that journey so much harder to be interesting and original and so much more special when you get it right. Absolutely.
1: And those are the books that you can keep going back to, right? Even if you know the ending, you want to know how those characters do it, or I suppose, how the author executes it in their own way. What about you? What is the uh, a piece of literary advice that inspired you? So
0: mine's actually on my bookshelf over there. Um, I should have brought it over. But it's that you can't edit a blank page. And that's usually cited to Jodie Pico, but I have heard it Um, other people get credit for that as well. So I'm not sure who said it first. But when you're really struggling to write a scene, I feel like a reminder that you are going to go back and edit it is really important. Because I remember when I was at uni, we actually had to show multiple drafts of our stories and every single draft that we did. And we had to have at least three. And that was really hard because some of us didn't understand the importance of editing. And we were like, oh no, the story's right. We don't need to go back and do this. And I think that showed on our naivety because we didn't want to show that and we didn't see why it was important and I think that some of us didn't push ourselves as hard as we could have between drafts because I look back at drafts of some of my other projects now and how different they are between one and done and it is massive and I know that some people really want to write that perfect first draft but it's just not a thing it's not. There are going to be typos, there are going to be inconsistencies, there's going to be imagery that you could make more interesting or more vivid to allow the reader to really see and understand the world that you've written in. And when you're writing something, particularly when you haven't outlined it, you're not going to be able to focus on the description and the poetry, basically anything except coming up with plot in that first draft, if you haven't outlined it. And that's why I've started outlining. That's why I've started enjoying outlining. And I do find it a creative process because I keep calling it problem solving because it is. And so is editing. You know, editing is problem solving because you're putting holes in things and then you're filling in those holes using the right technique. And, you know, a hole in a piece of wood is different to a hole in a wall. The same as a hole in a romance is different to a hole in a fantasy. And that's part of the skill. And you've got to learn how to be an editor because it's a lot cheaper to self-edit than it is to outsource.
1: Just get your first draft done and then edit it later. <laughs> Precisely. Perfect. Shall we uh, head into our interview with Kristen?
0: Let's go. Mm. With me today, we have two people. We have a lovely co-host, Eddie Betts, for reasons I'll explain in a minute. And we have our guest, Kristen Spencer. So. Ellie is my backup because I keep losing my voice and having coughing fits. So Ellie is going to help me with this interview today, and also she's got some awesome questions for Kristen. Welcome Hello. to the Writer's Mindset, Kristen. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, it was so much fun when I was on your podcast recently, and so I can't wait for our lovely listeners to meet you as well. It was so fun, and I've already referred Curable to like four people. Amazing! I love Curable. I'm I'm like a fan girl. Can you be a fan girl for medical stuff? I definitely I don't am think so but Ellie can attest to the difference curable made huge difference Christina is a whole new person
1: in a good way <laughs>
0: <laughs> aside from the choking to death part
1: aside from the choking to death part but th- to be fair that's not really curable's fault
0: no that's it's your fault
1: not. it's my fault
0: <laughs> right so Kristen tell us a little bit about yourself
1: and what you do
2: okay well um I am obsessed with books So I'll just start off by saying that I love writing. I'm obsessed with reading. Uh, I, I learned to read at like three and a half, something freakish like that. So my parents should have known that I would become a writer, but they still thought I would be like something. I don't know. I'm horrible at math. I don't know what I could have been. but So I've made a career basically out of helping people create stories because that's my passion. And I really believe that a good story can change the world. Because for me, storytelling changed my life. It gave me a safe place in, uh, some years of emotional unhealth that I couldn't really escape at that point. And so stories gave me a way of escape and they taught me how to be emotionally healthy when I couldn't really learn that from my parents. And even later on, my parents were like, we didn't teach you how to have boundaries. We didn't teach you how to like think through what you're feeling and why you're feeling it. So
0: maybe you should just go learn that. And so I did. And actually, I'm fairly sure that's how I learned to deal with emotions because my parents definitely did not teach me that. They definitely didn't. Books, they change lives.
1: They do. They do, because I am also in that camp.
0: (laughs) There's a pattern emerging here. There is a pattern
1: emerging (laughs) here. Definitely. Yes. The first thing we want to ask you then, uh, Kristen, is right at the start, back to basics, could you just clarify what is copy editing? So
2: uh, there's lots of different kinds of editing. And I actually started out as a
1: developmental
2: editor. And I did that for about five years. And I thought, I would love to be able to branch into copy editing because copy editing is like the middle as far as time commitment, developmental editors. You have to develop a lot of time to a project because you basically tear it apart and then put it back together the way the author meant to have it in the first place, but they weren't sure how to get there. Um, But for copy editors, I thought this is going to be a breeze. I'm going to be able to do this, no problem. And then I went to school to become a copy editor. And like, I cried every day for the first semester. I I didn't know. It's really hard. It's a lot of things you have to keep track of. Oh, yeah. And- the best way I can explain this is to uh, talk about a conversation I had last week where I have a novel coaching client and she finished her book. I'm so proud of her. But so her, she has a really good friend who's like, please let me see the book. I want to correct the grammar in it. And she's like, what should I tell her? And I'm like, tell her, no, <laughs> tell her that's what you have me for because people who think like our grammar fanatics think that that's enough to be a copy editor, but it's not because if you just go based on that, you're doing everything off of your own preferences and your own standards and not industry regulated preferences and standards. So when you go to copy editing school, they teach you how to create things like style guides and to use the Chicago manual of style, or if you're writing, you know, a more journalistic, typewriting or articles you would use ap style so the and then us has different style books than the uk australia does whatever they want
0: um (laughs) australia i think is mostly the same as british english and i think canada is like a hybrid of british and american i might be completely wrong but that's the gist i don't know
2: (laughs) i thought that and then i got an australian client and they're like use us english i'm like what okay all right Probably That's not a what marketing I, thing.
0: I think a lot yeah. of Aussies get flack for using australian english from american reviewers so sometimes people will either preempt it and just write in american english because it's obviously a much bigger market or they will put like a disclaimer at the front saying this book is written in australian english these are not typos and I've known some Brits <laughs> to do that as well. I'm not even, like, joking. There are so many discussions in all the Facebook groups. What language should I use? Should I preface this? And I ju- I usually end up mentioning the location in the first chapter of my book, so I feel like that has me covered. If you don't understand that this is Nottingham and people use weird words like Nesh, then, like, I didn't know what Nesh meant until two years ago, you know?
1: Really? You've never heard mm-hmm. Nesh before? I'm not from Nottingham. It's not a I thing. Don't- oh, yeah. I don't know what Nesh means. means. Can- Can- can you tell me so,
2: and also the U.S. listener?
1: <laughs> so for anyone who doesn't know, Nash effectively means cold. It's, it's normally used to describe someone who is always cold. They would be Nash. They are Nash. So basically. And it has. So
0: basically. Receiver, no, yes.
2: And then no indefinite article. So you're just Nash. You're not
0: a Nash
1: or the Nash. No, you are Nash.
0: Yeah. The, okay. the thing I hear people say a lot is, I'm going to sound really stupid when I say this because I'm quite posh, but usually I hear people go, "In it Nash? Yeah, if it's just cold out. So, isn't it cold? Is basically what that means. Okay. But it's like an unbelievably Nottingham thing. And it, I can't, my book is set in Nottingham and I can't include it. I just, I love colloquialisms.
2: I, I just well. want to apologize on behalf of all American readers. <laughs> you know, it's it's such a cranky thing that happens to where Americans are it's America's a co- is two continents, right? But people from the US will be like, "I'm American." And Canadians and Mexicans are like, "What the heck? Like we also are in North America with you. Plus don't forget our South American friends." But, you know, I try to push back whenever someone says that. I'm like, "Well, we're from the US. We're not the only Americans, but,
0: you know, it's it's an effort in futility, I feel, but I'm not going to give up as you shouldn't like we sometimes say English instead of British because Scottish is vastly different. And so as well, Northern Irish. Mm, yeah. Very yeah. Different. OK, so back onto proofreading before I start coughing again. I have seen a lot of people in the past confuse proofreading and copy editing. And I can see you nodding right now. Oh, yeah. Why? <laughs> why do some people confuse them or many people, frankly, and what are actually the main differences between them? Okay. So there's two parts that I have to explain with this answer. The
2: first is that a lot of it is wishful thinking because proofreading is so much cheaper. People will be like, oh, my book just needs a proofread. And they don't even know what it means, but they know like the price will go down. So, uh, Because copy editing takes more time. And so I will say this, the biggest difference, and this is how my professor explained it, is that proofreading happens after formatting has taken place. Copy editing happens before you format anything, because it would literally be anyone's worst nightmare to try to change all of those things in something that's already been formatted. So... Uh, And there's different levels of copy editing. And I think this adds to the confusion between copy editing and proofreading, unfortunately. But so um, I always say copy editing comes in different sizes. But instead of small, medium and large, it's heavy, medium and light. So if you've been writing for years, you're not going to need a heavy copy edit unless you hire um, Judith who is when I have a co-author and when we write together, we can't edit it. So we hire someone else and we hire Judith and she's been a copy editor for over 35 years. And no matter what she's doing, it's a heavy copy edit. Like she just can't help herself. So I was like, I don't think we need a heavy copy edit, Judith. Like we both edited each other's chunks before we sent it to you. And she's like, I can't do it any other way. So uh, I'll just like find a middle ground on the price, but I'm going to do a heavy copy edit. It's nice. That's I think like, it came
1: out really well, though, if she's uh, happy to put in that effort. She's so good. Like, I, yeah,
2: I wish I could bottle all her knowledge, but it's just impossible. Like, you know that saying,
1: she's already forgotten more about grammar than uh, I will ever learn. Wow. wow. So when you're copy editing, then what are some common mistakes that you see writers make? So I actually have a list. <laughs> because i did a
2: case study i read through 60 books in 30 days because i had to figure it out and one of the things that they teach you in copy editing school is to search for familiar patterns because every writer will have a certain type of mistake they make over and over again so you can go through and search and i will say this do not ask your editor to edit your project in google docs don't do that because they're they're very limited then on what they can do to your manuscript because Word is like magic for editors. At first, I was like, I'm not paying for Word. And then my professor's like, you have to pay for Word, you're going to fail this class. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to pay for Word. Wow. (laughs) Harsh.
1: I only just (laughs) recently had to start paying for it as well, but it's worth it, I think.
2: It's worth it because, you know, track changes you can do in Google Docs. And I think Okay. Let me explain what track changes are. So track changes are when an editor can go into your manuscript or your project, whatever it is, and they can go to the review tab and they click this thing that says track changes and all of their changes will show up in a magical different color on my computer. I have it set to hot pink because it makes me happy.
0: You can change the track changes color. Oh yes. I did not know this. I need to change it to pink oh my god and you can change different types of track changes to different colors too my mind is like blown right now i clearly just don't know how to use microsoft word well i will preface what i'm saying with the fact that
2: we had to go through a 60 page technical manual on how to use word as an editor when i was in my program wow
1: i mean they left no stone unturned that's for sure You'd hope if you're going to read 60 pages, you'd hope it's everything and there's not more.
2: I'm sure there is more because it's just so crazy. But like my brain was like, okay, we're doing our best, you know, up here. Just keep going. So there's things that I really focused on and things that I kind of glossed over. But for the most part, like so you can do something as crazy in Word as search for a combination of characters. Like, let's say, for example, I um, wrote elusive instead of elusive, which there's a difference, by the way. And copy editors are trained to know that. Um, I could search for words that begin with I L L and then have like you know the the specific amount of letters. It's just crazy what you can do with uh, find and replace on Word, and you cannot do any of that in Google Track Changes. So that's why I'm saying like, don't torture your editor. Also, I don't even accept. I don't accept any editing jobs where they're like, I'm going to make you use Google Docs. I'm just like, pass. I'm not the editor for you. I'll refer you to someone
0: else. But I don't actually know any editors that do use Google Docs. I've heard them just default to Word, but I assumed like it was just like an industry standard, not because it's like magic. It really is like magic. And so basically that
2: (laughs) I know I'm skipping ahead a tiny bit. But a red flag for you if you're hiring an editor and they're like, Google Docs is fine. That's yeah, that's a red flag. No, you don't want that. You need someone who knows how to use track changes because you're going to spend less money with them because they're more efficient.
0: Yeah. And for anyone who's going, oh, my God, I write in Scrivener or I write in Pages, you can convert pretty much anything to Microsoft Word. You can convert Google Docs to Microsoft Word as well. There is no excuse to say you can't work with Microsoft Word, even if you don't write in it.
2: Yeah, and I write in Scrivener and then Same. when I'm finished, I export everything to to Word. I go in, I clean it up so it looks pretty for my editor and then I send it away. And this is also something you should never do or if you do expect it to be changed, never send a single space document to your editor because it makes their eyes burn. Like you have to have the space. It helps when you're looking at it and you see all the track changes if they're all shoved next to each other it's just completely overwhelming
0: would you recommend 1.5 or two
2: double spaced? I think either one is fine. I like 1.5 because if I'm going to print anything out, I don't want like a million pages and I do print out things. I know that's old school, but for my own stuff, I print it out and I hand mark it, which there's like this whole crazy, uh, guide that tells you how to hand mark Editing projects still, and we're still using it. Editors still use it. They still have to learn how to do it and they get tested on it in editing school. So it's not a completely digital world, which I appreciate because for me, I need that tangible, tactile connection to what I'm working on, especially if it's my own project.
0: Yeah, I get that. I think everyone is different. Like I don't print anything out um, for two reasons. One, I can't be bothered and don't like hooking my printer up. And two, the printer traumatizes the dog. So I like reading it on my iPad instead because then I'm still getting that kind of feeling of it being a book. But it's like most of my readers are on ebooks. So it's the same kind of experience that my readers would get. But everyone is different. And I can certainly see the benefit of marking it off, like using all the crazy symbols. I know a few of them and actually use them on my um, tablet. But anyway... We haven't actually talked about the difference between proofreading and copy editing. we went off on a bit of a tangent. So yeah, what are the big kind of differences other than the fact one you do before and one you do after formatting?
2: So the thing that people don't understand is proofreading cannot happen until copy editing happens because proofreading you're going through and you're looking for those last few mistakes that made it through the copy editing process. Uh, and I will say this: robots suck at editing things. Like Grammarly introduces way more mistakes than it does fix things, especially if you're a newer writer. Like it will oh my delete gosh. every use of had, and then you have no further past tense in your project, and you're like, "What happened?" Or Pro Writing Aid does that too.
0: Yeah, I, so- I find Pro Writing Aid is better than Grammarly, though, particularly for fiction. I don't know if that's just my experience, but my boyfriend used to use Grammarly. And I was like, I'm not going to pay for Grammarly and for a writing aid because I did at one point um, yeah. because I had a year's subscription of Grammarly and decided I didn't like it. So I <laughs> um, had pro writing aid, but I certainly found pro writing aid is more useful for fiction writers and picks up on more. It's not perfect because it's a robot, right. but it's slightly more accurate and more open to nuance, I would say. So this is what I would say regarding pro writing aid. If you
2: first, if you're just writing, like this is your first year doing it, get a year subscription. Don't pay for the lifetime one. I made that mistake. (laughs) So I have it forever, even though I don't use it at all anymore. Um, But track what kinds of language you're using. It is a great way to help you understand that you're using way too many adverbs, like way too many. And that's one of the common mistakes that I see authors make all the time. And especially in uh, said tags, which if you don't know what a said tag is, it's the part of the sentence that comes after dialogue and it tells you who said the thing. Or we have also action tags, which indirectly tell you who said the thing by showing you what they're doing. But so don't ever use adverbs in those. You don't need them. They're not adding information and pro writing aid. Really um, helped me realize I don't need 23 adverbs in one scene. Ouch. And yes, that really happened.
1: 23 in a scene is quite impressive.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, am I doing this on purpose? What's going on? <laughs> what, one thing I've found is the dialogue someone says should convey their mood. Um, so then you don't need the adverb. Um, and if your dialogue isn't conveying that, then you might need to study dialogue. We've got a course on that, by the way. If you want to check it out. Um, oh, we also have a Pro Writing Aid discount, um, which I will stick in the uh, show notes.
2: Oh, Pro Writing Aid is also useful for knowing
0: when you're using passive voice. And it kind of, yeah. you oh in my God, about that. It really helped me with my passive voice. And it still does because some of my clients actually kind of like passive voice, but you don't want to use it too much because then it makes the post sound like it's in a monotone and I don't know what to say in a monotone but it just makes the post really boring so you've got to kind of find that fine line between writing in passive voice and making it really boring right so in copy editing school
2: they taught us this trick if the action being acted upon is more important than the character in that scene you can use passive voice otherwise forget it useful to keep in mind I'm telling you, like, copy editing school, I learned way more about writing than I have in any writing program I've been through or experienced. I learned more about writing in the one year of copy editing training than I did in four years of
0: my comparative world literature course in university. That doesn't surprise me. That really doesn't surprise me. I didn't learn how to structure a story in my creative writing degree, and I studied creative writing for four years. And then had to basically That's... self-teach myself plotting. That makes me so sad. <laughs> I think we had like one class when on it when I did my BA and one class on it in script writing. And I didn't pay attention to it in script writing because at this point I'd realized I didn't want to be a script writer, mm-hmm. which was a stupid approach to take. I still should have paid attention. But I was also kind of like, oh, no, I don't need to plot a story. It makes it less creative. And if you're in that camp, like go listen to Christina Stanley's podcast interview that we did last, I think, August, July, September, last summer, because she explains the science behind storytelling and there is an amazing science behind it that's really fascinating if you're in psychology. And basically, if you don't hit certain notes, then you're just going to upset readers, listeners, both. Everyone, everyone yeah. involved. <laughs> Everyone's going to be annoyed at you if you don't hit those story beats for a reason. Same as if you don't structure your romance in a certain way, You're going to annoy people. Yes. And then if you're thinking, well, I know of these authors who break
2: those rules, I would say to you, they already had an established audience and fan base before they tried to do that because there's no way they would have gotten signed or they would have had adequate sales if they had started out that way. Exactly.
1: So then in which case, if any of our lovely writers listening want to become better at their own copy editing, how can they do that? So I'm going to make a
2: distinction here. I would say that when you are editing your own work, I would not call it copy editing. Even me, when I'm editing my own work, it's not copy editing because actually you have to use a different part of your brain that is so like on this side, you have editing and on this side you have writing. And when you've written something, your brain automatically will engage the writing part even when you're going back to make self-edits. So that's what I would call it self-edits. And that's how uh, I introduce it in my different books where I help writers understand the process because I had to write a book about this. I wrote it with my co-author, Maria Mundo Kalaki, but there was no book out there that explained like, how do you get from writing a scene to self-publishing your own novel? Who do you need to hire? And what are the different types of editing? Like I couldn't find anything that talked about editing enough. I felt like, and maybe I am obsessed with editing. I'll admit that. Uh, But that's something that writers need to know about. And so I would say in order to get better at your self edits, and that's what I call it, you need to stop doing these six things. All right. Are you ready? I'm going to give you a list. You
1: have a list. you prepared a list. I'm so impressed. I have lists for everything I can't help myself. I love it, I'm so excited. I'm excited for the list, I'm gonna make notes.
2: Okay, the first thing, so this is my list of what I call story killers. And this will cause a reader to stop reading your book immediately. And you never want that because, do you know, Ellie, how many chances you get with a reader? No, how many do you get? One, forever. forever. Because they assume that whatever book they pick up from you is, uh, you know, represents your entire collected work.
1: Of course. And if they don't like that one, why would they pick up the next one, right?
2: Right. And they've already, Ooh. at this point, usually they've trusted you with their money and they're deciding, should I trust this person with my time? Because time is our only non-renewable resource. We can't get any back. That makes sense. Okay. So this is the list. These are the story killers. The first one is neglecting your hook. You have to have a hook. And this is how I can tell whether or not someone has worked with an editor at all. They have no hook for like five pages or they have no hook in their entire book. And I'm just like, who let you do this? Who said this was okay?
1: Because, Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, I've definitely picked up a couple of books like that and thought, I I can't read this. I I just can't. (laughs) So the weird thing
2: that I do now because of all my experience, but I still love reading, is instead of reading the synopsis, even though that's the most important part of marketing you have aside from your cover. I don't want to know everything that's going to happen in the book. I want to find out as I'm going. So instead I pick up a book and I give the book three pages. If I don't know who the main character is, what's at stake for that character and what kind of genre I'm reading, I'll stop. I don't buy the book. I sit there in the bookstore and I do that. I read three pages and I'll put the book back or it goes in my cart.
1: That's genius. I love that idea. Three pages is more than fair, right? To establish some very basic things. I think so. And that's what I, so if you can do it on the first page, that's even
2: better. And that's what I recommend to my clients. Don't neglect your hook. Uh, and if your listeners are like, I don't know, Kristen, how to write a hook. If you want to learn to write a hook for free, you can go to literary symmetry.com forward slash hook them H O O K E M. My hook formula is free. You don't even have to sign up for my email list. I just want everyone to have it because I can't deal with this anymore. Like it just makes me sad. It breaks my heart because sometimes <laughs> the story's good, but there's no hook and I know no one's going to read it.
0: Yeah, I tell you what, I actually only give books one page. <laughs> I'm really harsh, sometimes even only a paragraph because I don't know if you've noticed, Ellie, I have quite a short attention span. So if I don't like the writing style... My brain just like switches off. I might have picked up a book that my boyfriend bought to read and started reading it in a really sarcastic voice because it was written in purple prose.
1: Christina has
0: a vendetta against purple prose. It's not for everyone. I, no, I do not. Yeah, I do have a vendetta against it. I'm not like, I mean, for some people it's fine. For me, it's personally not. Like I say, my boyfriend think... doesn't mind it.
2: I think for most people, it's not fine. And the market is telling us that, right? We see that literary fiction is kind of taking a nosedive and that makes a lot of people upset. But I would say if it's really good literary fiction, it will stand the test of time. A great example, recent example is *A Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Toles. I'm reading it slowly because it is literary fiction, but he makes every sentence count. His jokes are amazing and his characters are relatable and lovable. Mm,
1: mm. Perfect. That's what you want, right?
2: Yes. That was an accidental pitch for Immortals, but it's it's <laughs> a great book. <laughs> okay. Back to my list. Is that okay? Yes.
0: yes. Okay. We're on number right, two. Aren't we? Yeah,
2: yeah. Number two. And I know you're going to love this one. You're going to nod. You're going to be like, yes, exactly. Okay. Over description. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) That is a telltale sign of someone who has just started writing or someone who hasn't been honest enough with themselves or let an editor be honest with them about what readers really want. So it ties into the purple prose we were just talking about. If your description does not have something vital to do with the plot and it doesn't move the scene forward, you have to delete it. You have to get rid of it. I have a very painful story about overdescription, actually. So, uh, you know, let like, let's rewind 10 years. All right. I was writing my first series and I really loved this one author and I had written to her and I was like, Hey, do you want to read my newest book? And she was, I was on her, um, beta reader team. So she's like, Oh, sure. I'll read it. And she read it. And she's like, I had to skip giant chunks of this book in order to keep going. And she wrote that in the review on Amazon. She didn't like tell it to me first. That's how I saw it. And I just wanted to like give up forever and also die.
1: Oh, wow. That's not very nice. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to tell you that, which is, you know, harsh to hear, but critical advice, right? It's quite another to just write it on the Amazon without telling you.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, she was trying to be gentle about it, but it just, it was so devastating. And that's when I realized I need to figure out how not to do this. I can't do this anymore. And when I did my case study and I started reading through, it was like the number one thing that made me want to stop reading. And then I did something even more painful. I went back and reread the introductions to my first three books and all of them had chronic overdescription. Oh no, that's painful. <laughs> it's painful, but
1: it shows how much you grew since you wrote those first ones, right? True. It does. But also I unpublished those books. Because <laughs> it is not, No, I can't. I, I don't blame
2: readers if they read that and they're like, I'm not going to trust this lady with my time or my money. <laughs> So I was just like, yoink. And my aunt is still like, I don't understand why. And I'm like, I don't think you're going to understand, but it's okay. I wrote new, better books. And she's like, okay. All right. Are we ready for number three?
1: Number three. Let's do it.
2: Okay. Unclear bloviated text. Oh yeah. Christina's laughing, but you can't hear her.
1: So (laughs) uh, you
2: can't use confusing or giant words and phrases because they're going to offend your reader. What you're doing when you do that is you're calling your reader stupid and no one wants to feel that way. Also something else that would fit into this is what I would refer to as industry jargon. Anytime you use terms like, did you notice that every time I'm like this thing and I'm like, let me define that. Because if I don't do that and you don't know what it is, You are going to stop listening and I don't want you to stop listening to Christina's show because she's awesome and Ellie is awesome and you need to keep listening. So I'm like, let me not make that mistake on here.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's one of my pet hates when people use obnoxious words and they don't realize that rather than qualifying their audience, it actually excludes them and people are more likely to switch off. Like, regardless of whether you're writing nonfiction or fiction, people are reading generally during their downtime or they're doing a lot of reading because they're researching something. So, if you can make their brain do less work, they're going to like you more. You know, there is a reason the best selling newspaper in the UK has the average reading age of an eight year old. Not because it's particularly good or reliable. It's because it's accessible. That's right. And so anytime you're
2: writing, you want to make sure. And actually, this is where an editor shines. We are trained on this to death. Like, so there are these things that are called the five C's. And I had to write them down because they all sound alike. And then I lose one. I always lose one. And it's always a different one. But So editors are always looking to help make your text more clear, more concise, more correct, and more consistent in an effort to accomplish the fifth C, which is communication. Nice. I like that. It's not mine. It's in the copy editor's handbook. So I just use that all the time. I know they didn't come up with it either, but they talk about it like their explanation is the best. So yes, there is an actual textbook for copy editors and it comes with the world's most intimidating workbook. I'll say that. How is it intimidating? You've intrigued me because I kind of want to read it. <laughs> so I, the textbook is great. I would read it alone. But every time we had to do an exercise out of the workbook, I just wanted to die because they purposefully mask mistakes. They, purpose, like, they make it as complicated as possible for you to figure out everything, especially the further on you go in the workbook. So in the beginning, I was like, okay, I can do this. And then towards the end, I was like, oh no, I missed this mistake. I missed this thing of plagiarism, which uh, that's also an editor's job. So if you plagiarize something and you give it to a copy editor, they're going to say, hey, you need to change this or we're not finishing this transaction because that's dishonest. So it's not that we don't love you as a client. It's that we have integrity ourselves and plagiarism is junk and you shouldn't do it. Definitely. So number four is... Head hopping. I know people are going to get mad. People always get mad when I bring this one up and they're like, How dare you tell me not to do this? But okay, remember one of the jobs of an editor is to get rid of all confusion. And this is very confusing to the reader. And I did this in my first, in my second book. And instead of fan letters, which they were still kind of fan letters, I got a ton of letters that were like, hey, did you mean to do this? You slipped into this person's perspective right here. It was so upsetting to them. I didn't know I was, you know, I was a new writer. I just didn't know what I was doing. But this is one of the things that will stop readers because it confuses them. And also they feel like you haven't
0: put in the effort to show
2: that the perspective has changed.
0: I find it less immersive when I read a book that does that. And I know one of the arguments I hear from people when you tell them not to do it is, oh, but so-and-so trad published author does it. That doesn't excuse it. That's the excuse we hear for everything, right? Like, well, people yeah, are,
2: they don't want to follow rules. because. Listen, I will, I just will say this. This is the thing, okay? Following rules does not make you less creative. And I think that's what a lot of authors are afraid of. These yeah. rules are to help you communicate with a reader better. And that's what you should want to do as a writer.
0: That was something I mentioned actually to Christina Stanley as well, because we were talking about some editing mistakes more from a dev perspective. And she said that certain authors can do it in the right way. But I think it is one of those cases, you have to know the rules before you know how to break them in the same way that you have to understand the structure of a story to be able to break it apart or understand how poetry works to be able to break a poem apart or write your own that's not as rigid or kind of makes fun of a structure or plays with it, you know? Yeah, definitely.
2: And uh, I, you know, when I was writing my newest book about writing, which is so meta, it's called Write Fewer Words, Tell Better Stories. But when I was writing that, I was reading A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith, which is like an amazing piece of American literature, Cause I'm trying to catch up. Cause my degree was like comparative world literature. So we didn't do any American literature at all. And she does, she head hops the entire book and, but she does it successfully. But I thought if she were publishing this now, well, first of all, she would be able to actually publish it as her autobiography, which was her intention. And the publisher said, this is too dark. You need to turn it into fiction. Wow. So she would have been able to do that, but
0: also they would have told her not to do the head hopping. True. That is true. But if she's done it well, right, potentially it's worth studying that and considering why she's done it well, right?
2: Yeah. So she basically took a James Patterson approach, who is the example that everyone uses when they say, I can do this. But the thing is, James Patterson isn't doing, he's not head hopping. He just doesn't have the title that says like the character's name above. But he lets you know every time he switches perspective in the first few words whose perspective you're in. And he does that either with a geographical location or something they observe about themselves or, you know, he can, it's really easy to do with a set tag. If you have that person talk first and then you have
0: some inner dialogue
2: or inner discourse that shows this isn't their perspective.
0: Yeah, which shows there are ways to do it. It's just about understanding it and making it as accessible to your reader as possible because ultimately that's the point of copy editing.
2: Right. And it also depends on the target audience for your book. If you're writing for younger people, like I can't tell you how many times I've seen this happen in YA where they don't offer any perspective change uh, heads ups. And then the target audience gets mad because they're not going to be able to follow along with the implied perspective changes as well as like, for example, in new adult or adult literature.
0: And also, let's not forget, like young adult audiences generally have a shorter attention span. So if you make a mistake, they're probably going to be more critical of it and more inclined to put it down and not give you that second chance. Well, and they're going to go on Goodreads and blast you. That's my that's what I see all the time. (laughs) Yeah, there is
2: also that. Which Goodreads is not the polite place for feedback. So uh, if, you're an, if you're a new author, maybe just stay away from Goodreads for like a year or so after you publish your first book, because otherwise you're going to want to quit. Um, <laughs> just Amazon reviewers are generally friendlier, which I don't understand why that difference is. But I feel like good readers take it like in pride. They're like, I write really accurate reviews. I'm not going to let my friends who follow me read a crappy book.
0: Yeah, that sounds about right. And I think that rating system is generally a bit harsher as well. It is. That's true. Yeah, they're different. I know because it's five stars, right? But the five stars mean different
2: things in different places, including Mm -hmm. on Barnes and Noble's website. Not to be confusing at all. (laughs) No, I mean, so yes. So so whoever put these systems together didn't have an editor on their team. That's what I always say, because (laughs) editors wouldn't let this happen. And also, I would say that if you have to jump into someone's perspective one or two times for the book, just don't even bother doing it. Figure out another way to write that scene because it's not worth pulling the reader from one brain into another brain for one or two scenes in the book
0: yeah i agree i actually very nearly did that for my most recent book the mummy's curse and i was going through and editing it because i was like i've got to write these scenes to see if they work and if they don't work i could cut them and i went through them and went shit they don't work (laughs) but i had to write them to have that understanding and now i can just use them as bonus content for my mailing list or blog yeah anytime you write something it's not a waste and
2: uh A lot of writers that I coach or work with and they're new, they will be like, but Kristen, I can't, I just can't delete it. And I'm like, that's fine. Make a, if you're using Scrivener, make a folder for deleted scenes, put it in there and you're not deleting it. You're going to keep it forever. Or if you're working in word, you know, create a different document, put those in there and save them because that will give you permission emotionally to take it out of your book, but to move forward.
1: Yeah. Who was it? We were talking to Christina who called them outtakes they have them as a separate oh, thing and just um, calls them outtakes for their book like it, it's a movie that they've edited or something i can't remember who was it?
0: Oh, I'm terrible. i can't remember but that sounds really familiar
1: i was listening to some the other day when they were called
0: it outtakes basically which i just thought was the best concept for having yeah i, having I do think really that because like the scenes i wrote for the mommy's curse and ben's perspective are really cute and they're really funny and they obviously flesh out his character But they don't serve a purpose in the story. And so I was like, people who are interested in the books will probably be interested in reading these extra scenes. But there's no point including them in the book because they're just adding fluff to it. And it's already quite a complicated plot. They're just slowing it down. The first thing that happened when you said that is my brain switched into marketing mode. And I'm like, why not have that as an email magnet lead at the end of the story? That's a good idea. I should use that as a lead magnet. I've got a short story at the moment, but cutting those scenes and putting them into something is a very good idea. Because readers love that. extra scenes after the fact. They don't like it when they're, they interrupt the pacing,
2: which is a whole nother thing that I'm not going to talk about right now. Pacing is very important. But, you know, when it's an extra treat at the end of the book, they love it. Yes, I'm definitely going to do that.
0: I need to add that to my to-do list. Okay, so we what number were we on? Were we on? Now we're on number five. Yes. Okay. And this is the biggest one. Well, over description is big,
2: but this is something. Wow, I just can't. I'm just going to jump into it. It's tense jumping.
1: Yes, big one, huge one. Right,
2: And so I've gotten like publicly screamed at over this because the person got so upset because I was defending their editor, right? I wasn't the editor. And in my brain, I was just like, they're trashing this editor. It's not fair because they said... Well, the editor took all the artistic vision out of my piece by changing the tenses so that they all were the same. And I was like, "What?" but that's their job. That's their job to do that.
0: It's your artistic vision. Do you change tense. Do they have like a DeLorean or something?
2: <laughs> Yay. Back to the future reference. I really love how geeky Christina is because I'm really geeky.
0: Too. <laughs> Ellie, are you geeky?
1: Oh yes.
0: (laughs) Okay, so we just don't talk Marvel to her because she still hasn't seen some of the later films. I'm
1: behind on Marvel, but you know.
2: Okay. All right. I won't spoil anything for you then because everything is so delicious. (laughs) I'm obsessed. But so I don't understand where this idea came from. And if either one of you ever see some kind of origin story for this, please tell me because it's driving me insane. Uh, But you like, I don't understand why newer authors think that the artistic thing to do is to start the book in present tense and then change it to past tense and
0: keep it that way for the rest of the story. I am very grateful I have never witnessed this because having Mm. a creative writing degree, the desire to tense jump was drilled out of me very early. Actually, I don't know if I ever did that because I think I had quite a harsh English teacher. But like, yeah, the point is our English, our creative writing teacher's like, no, you don't do this. This is confusing. I don't know what the fuck is going on. It's basically what they would say.
1: I am st- still guilty of doing this occasionally, but it's something I'm working on. But
0: you do <laughs> not, I think that's like an accidental thing. You're not hmm. saying like you're doing it for a creative reason. You just, oh no, it when you're not, writing.
1: It's not intentional. It's just, yeah, it's it's definitely accidental when I'm writing.
0: And this is why you've got beta readers like me. He will beat you over the head with a tent stick. <laughs>
1: I've been beaten by worse, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
2: and I just, I mean, I include examples of how to write in every single book I have and every single course I have because when it comes to tense, it can get confusing. And I have a friend who is a um, creative writing professor for a master's program in a college right near here. She's in my writing group. My writing group is crazy. Like I have her, we have the copy editor, Judith, who's been doing it for 35 years. Like if you ever want to be really intimidated, come to our writing group and submit something.
1: Um, uh, I might decline that actually. <laughs> <laughs> might I'm pass glad for I did
2: it. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't find it until I had been writing for like eight years. And that I'm glad because I would have just like left crying probably. Ba has been set. So, <laughs> yes. Been sad. So what is uh, number six on our list then? Number six is incorrect formatting. So there are standards in the industry for how things should be formatted. And this is also one of the telltale signs of someone who has not hired a copy editor because people are like, I don't understand why you're so focused on this, but the truth is this is part of communicating well with the reader because the formatting tells them what's happening. Uh, The formatting can give them hints as to what to expect. We need things like scene breaks. We need things like indents. Uh, If we don't have those, we don't, it's like trying to read an ancient Greek basically where there's no punctuation, there's no titles. They had to use tablets. So they were like, we got to make every little thing count, but we we don't have to use tablets anymore. So we can use correct formatting.
0: Exactly. And it does make a difference and it makes people's lives easier as well, right? Yeah. And I will tell you this, if you
2: understand how to, to correct your document well and properly, you're going to save yourself a ton of money on copy editing, because if you don't do it, it's the copy editor's job. Do you really want to spend your money on their time to do something that you could do? Or do you want them to be able to find all those, you know, if I get a manuscript that um, is formatted well, the grammar is good, and everything seems to be pretty consistent, I can spend a lot more time really pushing the story aspect, which I'm also a developmental editor, but copy editors are trained to pay attention to what's going on in the story. And they can be like, hey, so you set this thing up here, but you never showed it to us. This is a good opportunity to have one or two lines about this to help build your character arc. It's, it's up to you, right? You don't have to learn how to correctly format, but if you do, you're going to say you will literally save yourself thousands of dollars in editing fees.
0: Yeah, I think that's something that people forget. I've seen people like try to rush their first book, particularly towards the final stages. And so because they're rushing it, they think they can skip copy editing or do a half-assed job um, or do it themselves badly because they don't know what a copy edit is. And then maybe they outsource it or they try to do a copy edit once it's been published. And they're like, why is this costing me so much money? Why have I been quoted so much? Because you didn't do it to begin with, Because the editor is spending twice as much time
2: on your manuscript because you didn't put the work in beforehand. Yeah, just like you're saying. I mean, and that's, you know, I'm fine. I'll get paid either way. But I, that's not like the thrill of copy editing for me. It's like, let me put an indent and delete all these tab. Do not use the tab key. Please just stay away from it. You don't need it. But, you know, I'd rather spend time making everything polished, making the story shine and helping the point of connection between the reader and the writer. And that's really what a copy editor does.
0: So you mentioned formatting and the tab key. What are the other telltale signs that someone has published their book but skipped copy editing? Because let's face it, it happens. A lot of newbie authors skip copy editing either because they don't understand what it is or because they don't think it's as necessary as it actually is yeah so basically i have to explain explain another brain science thing here which i hope you love as much as i do i can't help myself oh okay, yeah well- it's like christmas when we talk about this kind of stuff ellie and i send each of the book recommendations on this kind of thing all the time We do, we do so yes tell us we want to know okay so there's this thing
2: called direct attention deficit And it happens anytime, not just when you're writing, anytime your brain has to be particularly focused on the same thing for too long of a time. So it will, it does this crazy thing, which a lot of people don't believe it can do, but it can, and it will auto-correct what you're looking at. Your brain will literally auto-correct. And in the world of editing, we call this mistake blindness, so the telltale sign, like for me, the first thing is no hook, right? The second thing is tense jumping. The third thing is over description. And if they've nailed all those things, which first time authors rarely do, then their manuscript is full of mistakes that they think were right.
0: Are there any of those particular mistakes that you see occur regularly? The author's like, no, this is right. This is really, really right. And you're like, no. Well,
2: I would say using adverbs in dialogue is a telltale sign that you're, you don't know what you're doing. I'm sorry, that's (laughs) harsh. But um, yeah, a lot of authors will insist that that's correct. People will argue about indefinite articles, right? They'll be like, I don't need a there. I need that. And I'm like, no, you don't. Because as a writer, you might have forgotten the way that sentences are structured. And basically for the first six months of copy editing school, you have to go through and be able to parse everything, which If you've learned another language, you know instinctively how to parse something, but you might not think about doing that in your own language, your home language. And parsing is when you can take a sentence apart down to, it's like most basic structures. Like you're like, I have a subject, I have a verb, I have a noun. And then look, here's an adjective, you know, all the fun parts of speech. But when you're writing and you haven't thought about that in the language you're writing in for a long time, you forget the nuances. And A really common mistake is to um, use a singular verb for a plural noun or a plural uh, verb for a singular noun, which gets way more tricky in British English because you like to use singular (laughs) verbs for certain collective nouns, which I had to learn the list in copy editing school.
0: I don't don't know what you're talking about. British English isn't weird or confusing at all.
2: (laughs) Well, i an example. If
1: that's
2: okay. For a team, you would use singular, but in American English, we would use plural. To it? Or is it opposite? So Manchester
0: <laughs> are going to play, and we would oh, say like, Manchester uh, is.
1: Oh, yes. I see what you mean. I yeah. do know a
0: lot of Brits who get annoyed at that, though, when you do that. They're like, no. A team or company is one entity, so you use the right. singular. And some people get very like they would die on that cross basically if you don't <laughs> use the singular. Because when I used to work for my old job, I posted something on social media and I said, like the company are, and they're like, No, it should be is. And I got a massive Twitter run about my grammar, <laughs> and my boss was just like, ignore this idiot.
2: <laughs> You're like, uh, maybe where you are, that's how it works, but here that's not how it works, and that's why you pay a copy editor because they mm-hmm. know these differences like I had a friend who was writing a thesis and he sent it to me and the first thing I messaged him back I was like are you doing this through a school in England and he's all yes I was like okay because I could tell from the way he was writing it.
0: I went to uni with someone uh doing my MA she was American and she wrote everything in American English rather than British um and luckily one of our lecturers was married to um, an American um, so he, you know we kind of had an understanding of it and he said it's absolutely fine if you want to do that but be consistent with whatever you choose and it's why like when someone sends me something written in British English and they're using double quotation marks I go off on a bit of a rant about publishing standards because I've don't been like beaten with that stick marks. a few times as well, yeah, you have- <laughs> well the thing is, schools teach you to yeah. use double quotation marks But then you study creative writing or you read like um, Hart's manual or whatever it's called. That's the English version anyway. Um, You read that and it's like you use single quotation marks. Hart's style guide is the one I think. Um, Yeah, it's single quotation marks for a published book. And that's generally how you can tell if it was published in the US or the UK. Yeah, you you have to
2: stay consistent. Like you said, whatever you choose, like for people, if they don't come to me with a style and this is something authors need to know. If you hire a copy editor and they don't ask you which style you want, um, two things could be happening. One, they're just trash and you shouldn't hire them. Or two, they will assume you want the Chicago Manual of
1: Style in the US at least. Very interesting. That's good to know. So when our writers are writing their books, then what stage should they be looking to do the copy editing? And how long does that generally take? You have to start thinking about
2: it. A couple months before you want to publish because after copy editing and i think a lot of people make this mistake they're like i'll get it copy edited the month before it's supposed to come out no don't do that <laughs> because you need to be thinking a few months out because copy editing takes two rounds so the first round the copy editor will suggest all the changes and this is something else that the author is always the boss even if someone wants to keep something incorrect grammatically In their book, I have to do that. I have to honor that wish. I can explain to them why I would prefer for them to change it. But at the end of the day, it's their choice. And if you have an editor who's like, I insist either change this or I'm not working with you, fire them and find someone else (laughs) because you need someone who's going to be on your team to interpret what you're writing for the reader. And that means that your voice matters and you have ultimate say.
0: Do you find it hard knowing that the author has that veto power and they might be fighting against something that is technically wrong, but they are desperate to keep it in? I kind of had to stop feeling that way or I wouldn't have my job
2: right now. Um, But also I think if you're a writer, which I am, I write, I just write all the time. I'm always writing. And because I know how I would feel if someone forced me to do something with my book that I like, I had an intuition that this was right then I would feel really bad. But I think that's the point of an editor is they have to be able to understand the author's intentions and then they can meet them where they're at and say, if this is your intention, this would be a great change and this is the correct way. This is going to carry across what you wanted. So one thing that I am not going to say I will, you know, like ride or die, but I hate it when care when. Authors give characters numbers as names. And I love science fiction. And that this is a really common thing to do in science fiction, unfortunately. So they'll do that because they want to show that the government power is detached from the individual humans or aliens or whatever else. But the problem is then also the readers disconnected from them because as humans, we like giving things names, right? Like we name our pets and then that's such a dear name to us forever from that point on. So I've definitely like pushed that one a little farther because it's important to get that connection or else the reader's not going to care. And I know the author has put all this work, especially like world building and all that. I'm like. You don't want to throw this away because of this one thing you're trying to show when you could show it a different way. So like, that's basically, you want an author who I always say you want someone you like arguing with because you're going to argue. And at first that feels really horrible. Like this is what I do when I get a manuscript back as a writer, I will go through, I read all the track changes alone by myself, and then I wait three days and go through them again. Because at first all my sensibilities are offended, but then I need to like take space and remember this editor cares about what I'm doing or they wouldn't have taken this job and they care about the reader. So I need to take seriously anything they say. It's a slice of humble pie for sure. Uh, I don't know what humble pie tastes like. I imagine it tastes something like marshmallows that's what I want to think that it tastes like
0: my brain is thinking much more bitter than that
1: <laughs> yeah I, I would assume humble pie oh, tastes man, like anything. it's good for you but isn't good for but it doesn't taste nice so uh
2: you should plan about three months out from your project but longer if it's more than 80,000 words I would say um and you need to get a contract with a copy editor at least six months to a year before you need them because they're mostly booked out at least six months Um, because they need to know what's coming in so they can plan accordingly. So that might feel a little intimidating, but just even though you're scared, reach out as early as you can be like, this is my planning on having this. And if you're going to go past the deadline when you need to turn it into them, be prepared to either pay a fee or lose your editor.
1: Wow. Okay. So that's like at least nine months before the publish date then that you need to find a copy editor and make sure, and if they've got enough time to book you in, then you can make sure you're on track for that.
2: Right. And you, there are copy editors you will find last minute, but they're not going to be as high in quality or they might be brand new. So if you want a quality copy editor, you do have to think ahead. And remember, you're going to go through two rounds of edits where the author gets to talk back and say, I don't like this change. What else can we do? I accept this. And there are also two ways you can receive a manuscript. Uh, The first way is clean. So where they've accepted all the track changes except for things that they have questions about which is called a query. So they'll query you and ask you, is it okay to change this? Or do you want to think about this right here? Or you can get it uh, with track changes, which some people call the dirty version, (laughs) but because it's not clean, but like it's overwhelming if you ask for that. So I I always ask for both, but I only look at like the first 10 pages of the one with all the track changes so that I can see any repetitious mistakes I've been making. So that's what you call study track changes. And then for the rest of the manuscript I'm working with, I just look at the clean because it's too overwhelming otherwise.
1: That makes sense. And I like that you're still focusing on improving as well. You're getting back those changes and you're looking for patterns and looking at ways that you can improve next time.
2: Yeah. Working with a copy editor is good to polish your manuscript, but it will also improve your writing an amazing amount.
1: That's good to know. In which case then, when our writers are looking for a copy editor, what sort of criteria should they look for? So you're looking for someone who has some kind of official
2: training. You don't want, these are the phrases to look out for. Uh, I love grammar. That doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean they have any specific training in how to edit. So you're looking for someone, and these are the two ones that I follow personally, but you can be more strict if you want. Um, If I'm hiring a copy editor, I want them to have a certification, which there are two, there are only two certification programs in the United States. So you'll know which one they came out of. It's either through Cal Berkeley or UCSD, which is the program I did, which I highly recommend if you're thinking about becoming a copy editor. Um, And then the second thing that I will accept is a master's in teaching English as a second language, because a lot of my professors in copy editing school that degree and that's what equipped them to teach us and that's also what um, my co-writer Maria has she has a master's in teaching English as a second language and so she knows English better than most English speakers
0: yeah I have some friends who have English as a second language and their English is better than most native speakers that I know and you wouldn't know that English isn't their first language
2: it's really impressive like I don't know how they manage it when they're able to do that but They know grammar really well. And a lot of times, uh, if you can find someone in another country who has that distinction, their fees will be cheaper because their cost of living is cheaper. But also, they're not as well versed in pronouns. I mean, that's a difficulty for anyone learning a second language, is you don't know where you should put them or how you should combine them in like idiomatic phrases, for example.
0: I actually found, my editor is Romanian, and she explained some English rules to me that I subconsciously knew but couldn't articulate. And I'm like, how do you know this? She's like, our English teacher told us when I was like five. I'm like, what? I wasn't taught this when I was at high school. Because they yeah, just my- assume you'll know. You'll pick right, you up. You just think
2: you know and you don't. And that's what my co-author is from Greece. So her first language is Greek. And then her second language is Spanish. And then her third language is English. Wow. I can barely speak English on a good day. Yeah. My Greek is atrocious. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so one question we ask all our interviewees then, no pressure or anything. <laughs> What's one book that changed your life? So I'm going to pick something strange because I can't help myself.
2: <laughs> awesome. Uh, When I was 13 years old, I read this book called Phoenix Rising by Karen Hesse, and it's about a young girl who's also 13 named Niall, and she's dealing with the effects of a nuclear accident on her town. Wow. Powerful. So it's really intense, and it's kind of a love story, but it's more of a survival type story, and her parents have died as a result, and she lives with her grand. And that relationship is really interesting. But that was the first time a book ever made me feel so many complicated emotions. And that's when I realized how powerful storytelling was. And the best thing about this is I found a copy of this book and I gave it to my 14-year-old daughter and she's read it three times now. She loves it to death. Oh,
1: that's lovely. That's really interesting. I'll definitely uh, take a look at that.
0: I love books that kind of challenge you in a bit of a way and also have different layers to the story. So you've got the romance, but there's also some some political stuff going on. Maybe there's some sci-fi, some fantasy, some action, a little bit of everything. I think it's a way better way to hold someone's attention personally. Yeah, like I, I don't read a ton of romance unless
2: there's something else going on. So I really love Nicola Yoon and she always has like a romance plus something crazy. Like in one of her stories, uh, she has a girl who has to basically live in a bubble because of an autoimmune disease. And she sees the boy across, like in the house across and they like write on the windows to each other. And so there's a lot going on, but the romantic aspect is present, but there's more going on than just, I don't know, is this your, this is a pet peeve of mine when
0: they, the character's. The book could be over in a page if they would just talk to each other. Oh my God, yes. Uh, don't, <laughs> don't get me started on that one. But one thing I have noticed is that actually that does happen in real life. I've been with my partner 12 years now. My boyfriend and I have a policy. We'll be open and honest, even if it hurts. Yeah. Most people don't have that in their relationship. And I think a lot of romance books show the reality of it. But I actually do think some romance books should teach people the good habits because I certainly learned a lot of good habits from reading romance and I do think that's important I think it makes a difference yeah and I
2: think once you're at the point where you're like okay now I know how to have healthy relationships you're not content to read about unhealthy ones as much yeah so maybe that's why that's a peeve
0: of mine it could well be so I believe you've got a little present for our listeners I do have one. I'm so excited. I emailed Christina
2: last night, and I was like, "I'm really trying to like put this together." And she's like, "Okay, it's fine. Just you know, be able to function as a normal person. And if you can't finish it now, it's all right." But I did finish it this morning. Amazing! So it's called the Writer Jumpstart Bundle, and it has three things that will help you avoid basically all of the stuff that we talked about today uh, with reading three handy lists and the. The three things you get in it are don't write like this, a case study. And instead of the six points that I did today, I added three more. And it's the 10 biggest mistakes that writers make. And then the second one is the number one book introduction template. And I've modeled it off of a ton of books that just nail the first page. And all you have to do is plug in your information and you will have an amazing first paragraph. And then the last one is the ultimate manuscript checklist, which... I feel like would help you Ellie because it's (laughs) based on all of my coaching experience uh, and the things that authors might forget, but are really important because writing is stressful and you're Mm -hmm. juggling quite a few things. So this is just a checklist and you can mark off whether or not you have it. And if you don't have it, you can add it in. That sounds great.
1: I love a list.
2: I like lists. You can tell, I'm sure. So you can go ahead and pick that up if you go to literarysymmetry.com jumpstart and it's all
0: one word, there's no dash or anything. Amazing, thank you so much. Where else can our listeners find you if they do want to come and get to know you a bit better, check out your podcast, find out about your copy editing, that sort of thing. So you can find
2: me online and also I run an editing co-op so, uh, if I can't edit your piece, I will give you to an editor who is just as experienced. And you can check us out at literarysymmetry.com. And if you're interested in learning how to channel your emotions into fiction without telling anyone uh, uh, any of your deepest, darkest secrets, you can check out my podcast where I had Christina as a guest. Uh, it's called Writing Expensive Words. And you can see all of the episodes by
0: going to expensivewords.com. Such a good podcast. Definitely check it out. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for Ellie for giving my voice a break. This has been a really fun episode. I hope you have enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us, Kristen. Well, thank you for having me. It was fun, even though you're not feeling well. I hope
1: you feel better (laughs) soon.
0: Thank you. We'll just keep blaming you, Ellie. It's fine. It's all my fault. (laughs) Yeah. Did you find this episode enlightening? don't forget to hit that shiny, shiny subscribe button so that you never miss an episode. If
1: you're watching on YouTube, make sure you hit like and subscribe. It helps other writers find us and lets us know what kind of content you want more of. And you can support The Writer's Mindset over on Patreon for less than your favourite coffee a month. Join us to listen to bonus content to help you improve your craft and mindset, get early access to episodes and
0: much more. Visit patreon.com forward slash writers mindset today to come join us. See you next time. Keep writing.